Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained. Christians are encouraged and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us and may your hearts be blessed as God's word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. Well, amen. Take your Bibles, if you have not had them open already, to John chapter 4. We're in a series in the Gospel of John. John has uh, instructed us that already Jesus, of course, has begun His ministry and He has chosen His disciples and there is a, a growing popularity because of the healing ministry that the Lord has at the beginning, especially of His days as the Savior, His ministry upon earth. And John's ministry, John the Baptist, is beginning to recede, diminish. And John was okay with that because his, his goal was to point to the Savior and say, there He is, He's the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And His was a really a ministry of deflecting praise to the rightful one that we should worship, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we see chapter 4. This is a familiar text. We are now there. The Bible says, verse 1, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, and as I said, John is okay. He must increase theme of our lives, right? And we must decrease in the light of the sun. We put away candles, and so John's ministry was receding. And also the popularity of Jesus Christ was making it so that a lot of attention from the religious leaders was now focused on Christ and His disciples. Now, Bible is clear, verse 2 of chapter 4, that Jesus was not the baptizer. His disciples were, but quite a large crowd was following so he left Judea and was going to travel from the south, north, all the way to Galilee. In verse 4, the Bible says he must needs go through Samaria. Did you know that really as we begun our series, our study in the book of God, the Gospel of John, we'll try to get our advancer going here, perhaps it will, perhaps it won't. Um, let's see, try the other way. Um, we have learned that, there we go, this might work, this might not work. Men, would you advance the slide for me, please? Uh, we have found that the theme verse in the, the whole Gospel of John, keep moving forward, please. The theme verse, I'll just point in your direction, is found in John chapter 20 and verse 31. These things are written, the, the Gospel of John, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. And so it's so important that we understand as we come to John chapter 4, we're going to see John, we see the Lord Jesus Christ as He has this interchange, this discussion with a woman who comes to draw water from a well, very familiar portion of Scripture. And obviously most of the time we think, well, this is a great tutorial in how to win people to Christ. Now, there are many wonderful truths in this passage about that. There are. But really, this passage is, is focused on the supreme motive in evangelism. It's not to fill our churches or people line up at the baptistry. It is not to pat ourselves on the back by saying, this is how many folks that I have led to the Lord. No. The supreme motive, intention in evangelism is the worship of the Lord. The Lord says in this text, 
I am seeking those that will worship me in spirit and in truth. So as we go out and as we talk to our friends and neighbors, it is not about church growth alone or assimilation. It is, in fact, the, the, the honor, the respect, the worship that is due the Father. And we will be worshiping Him in glory with Carol, amen, throughout eternal ages. And the focus of heaven will be the worship of Jesus Christ, the worship of God Himself. You see, if church growth alone was our goal, we would just flip pancakes, sell chicken, do magic, bring in the clowns, hire the gaithers. But true worship, not many amens on that, true worship is indeed the focus of our lives. The heart of God is to bring the lost soul to Jesus and in the bringing, satisfy the deepest need of our hearts. God made us for worship and satisfy the greatest longing in terms of redemptive history of His heart. Father is looking for those of us who will worship Him in spirit and truth. How many of you would say that, yeah, as far as I know, I'm a great worshiper of God. You know, I don't lift your hands quite yet. Um, I am struggling with that. I, I want to grow in that area. Do you? I do. I, I sense that in my life I'm a babe in the woods when it comes to true worship. We're good worshipers, right? We, we, we all are designed by our Creator to have a longing to attach affirmation, honor, respect, worship, adoration to someone bigger than we are, something bigger than we are. God made us that way. Worship is the adoration of our great God, rendered from an obedient, holy, respectful heart. It's rooted in truth and expresses itself in spirit, that is to say, in heartfelt enthusiasm for these realities we now enjoy in Christ. I believe, if you want a proposition to a sermon, I believe that the profound effect of a worshiping church has a greater impact on the lost world than anything else. Say that again. I believe the profound effect of a worshiping church has a greater impact on the lost world than anything else. The root of the word worship really comes from a kissing of the royal hand of the king. It is to adore with honor. It comes from a word that means, again, uh, it's a picture of someone who is a subject to a king. He's kneeling before the king and he's kissing that hand. It implies, of course, reverence, humility, obedience, and heartfelt praise. Think about your life this week. How much true worship has transacted from your heart to the heart of your great King in heaven? We've all been busy, haven't we? I know we have. And uh, we often neglect the highest call and the greatest longing of our heart and God's heart to see this mutual, this worship of the King and the satisfaction in heaven to be worshipped by those He has redeemed. We have in our culture and in our lives this great desire 
for worship. Often it is misplaced. Perhaps you heard about this woman years ago. In fact, these kinds of events are all over the place. A few years ago, the Chicago Tribune reported the story of a New Mexico woman who was frying flour pancakes called tortillas, all right? Don't judge me on my Spanish. When she noticed the skillet burns on this tortilla resembled kind of the face of Jesus, well, she was excited about that. She showed it to her husband, her neighbors. They all agreed there was a face etched in the tortilla, and it simply, to their mind, had a, yeah, kind of looked like what they thought Christ would have looked like. So the woman took the tortilla to her priest to have it blessed, and she testified that the tortilla had changed her life, and her husband agreed. She was a happier, more submissive woman since the tortilla came to their house. Well, the woman took it home, put it in the glass case with piles of cotton around it to make it like it was floating in the clouds. She built a special altar for it and opened a shrine to visitors. Now, guess how many visitors came by her house to worship at the shrine of the Jesus tortilla. The next few weeks and months, over 8,000 people came by to, quote-unquote, worship this uh, oddity that she claimed, of course, was a picture of Christ. Isaiah 40 tells us of the silliness of the human heart, the propensity that we have, the internal need that we have to worship. You see, we're different than crickets and lizards, animals, beasts. God has given us this desire to worship our Creator, or at least God. He's put us in that, in, He's put that in us. You'd say, Pastor, that is silly. Those in Isaiah, they, um, they, they fashioned idols. Isaiah 40 tells us, how silly it is that the craftsman will, will fashion an idol out of stone or wood, and then after making that with his own hands, he bows down and he worships that as a symbol of some God somewhere out there. You say, I would never, ever do that. I'm an American. <laughs> we are so far past that sort of idolatry. And yet we polish our cars till we can see our faces in them. And we step back and say, boy, I adore that. Or we find our significance and our adoration and our children, our lawns, our houses, our cars in Hollywood. We just internally want something, someone to attach our appreciation and adoration to. John Piper has rightly said, God will not be satisfied in us until we are fully satisfied in Him. He made us for adoration. Today, we meet the Samaritan woman, outcast to Jewish society for sure, was sinful, she doesn't have a right thinking about God, but she's empty. She comes to a well to draw water, a daily routine, and she meets Jesus. And Jesus tells her about living water. She drank of it, running home. She spilled this satisfying living water over all her family and friends. And they too 
came running to meet the Savior, a song that often I think of when I read this passage of Scripture that is familiar to us, is this, all my life long, have you heard this hymn? All my life long I had panted for a drink from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Some of your testimonies can relate to this. You had looked for meaning and significance in a lot of things for worship. You attached your admiration and affinity and, yes, adoration to things lesser than God. All my life long, says the writer of this hymn, I had searched for a draught from some cool spring that I hoped would quench that internal longing for worship. And then it says, hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. By his life, I now am saved. You remember that day when Jesus came into your heart? Next stands, O sinner, won't you come today to Calvary? A fountain there is flowing deep and wide. The Savior now invites you to the waters free where thirsting spirits can be satisfied. Have you found Christ to be the satisfying living water in your life? We will see a woman as she meets the Lord. She's unsaved when she meets Him. But at the end of the day, we believe because of the context of our scriptures that she comes to know Him and taste, taste this living water and becomes herself a soul winner. Well, verses 1 through 6 gives us this, uh, verse 1 through 4 gives us the setting. The Bible says in verse 4 that after this, this time of growing popularity and leaving uh, Judea in the south, Jesus decides to get away from the eyes of the Sanhedrin and the religious folks that would want to squelch his ministry before it was time. His hour had not yet come. His ministry was just beginning. And the Bible says there's a divine necessity. Verse 4, the Bible gives us this information. The Bible says he must needs go through Samaria. See if I have a picture here of a map that might give you some context. Judea is to the south there of Samaria and Perea. And that's where he was, baptizing, and crowds were beginning to follow. And so he leaves that area back to Galilee, which be really a center of much of his ministry during his earthly days on earth. He's collected his disciples, dedicated them to the ministry, and he decides to go back home to Galilee. Now, the shortest route, obviously, is right through Samaria. You see, I don't know if your eyes are... Uh, tuned in, but there's Shechem and Sychar. That's where this well is, Jacob's well, originally planted there or dug by Abraham later, later by refreshed by Jacob. And the problem with this, and you who have been around this story and understand the text here a little bit, know that most Orthodox, purebred Jews never took the shortest route from Judea to Galilee. In fact, there were other ways to get there purposely set. There was the coastal route. You see that, the plain of Sharon by the sea. And then there was the other route around the other side, the eastward side, the Jordan River and beyond, where 
most folks who were of pure Jewish lineage would not, would decide to go around, never go up, but the Bible says he must needs Jesus because he was following the will of his father, decided to go straight, take the straight route through Samaria. The reason uh, most Jews disdained going through Samaria is because of the long, troubled history of Samaria. Samaria. The Samarians were Samaritans were very um, uh, distraught because there was this racial, almost ethnic diversity and really a distaste for the Jews. And the Jews mutually had this disdain for the Samaritans. And the reason is, and that's the backstory, we'll not go to it in 2 Kings chapter 17, tells us what happened. A little history is always good when we're studying the Bible. But in 2 Kings 17, it gives us the backstory of why Jews would not go through Samaria. In fact, when they go through, if they had to, for convenience sake, they would dust off their robes once they got past Samaria. They would spit on the ground in disgust at the journey, and then they would be considered somewhat unclean for a while just because their feet went across Samaria. And the reason there is this hatred one for the other is because in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in and decimated the northern tribes, took them into captivity, and left just the destitute, the poorest of the poor, to really maintain, keep the lights on in the cities around Samaria. It was just overrun and empty. The Assyrians just took everybody, most everybody, and time elapsed, and they realized that they needed, Assyrians realized they needed to plant people, foreigners, into these cities so that Samaria wouldn't rise again with a pure nationalistic fervor. So they brought foreigners to intermarry and to live in these vacant cities. Well, Babylon rose after Assyria, and so there were a lot of Babylonians that came into this area. And so during the ensuing time, of course, it was a few years later when Judea, or excuse me, the southern tribe of Judah went into captivity where? Babylon. But there was this long history where this area was an area of mixed races and mixed ethnicities and mixed religions. And so that chunk of ground was despised by the quote-unquote pure line of the Jews in the south. And after after the Babylonian captivity, this is interesting, Ezra 3 and 4, when Babylonia, excuse me, when the, the Judea, excuse me, for those from Judah came back to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem south, they, they despised so much this, this intermarried group, this synchristic, synchristic form of worship up there in Samaria that they did not, even though they wanted to come help rebuild the Ezra and Nehemiah and others said, no, you are not allowed to help us. In fact, because of your mixed blood and your odd, open, freewheeling religion up there, they had in, really incorporated all kinds of 
different sorts of gods and religions that mixed it all together with a form, a symbolism of Judaism. They said, you stay away from us. You are not allowed into our temple. You are unclean according to the custom of the law. We want nothing to do with you. And here they are, right in the middle of the land of Palestine. There to the south, we have uh, Judah, Judea, to the north, Galilee. And so they would, they would walk around this area. That's a little history. And that's why the Lord amazes us in verse 4 when He says, I absolutely have to go through Samaria. That aroused the sensibilities, of course, of his own disciples who were very much entrenched in the mindset of the day that, no, we don't need to go. Why do you suppose? Why do you suppose he said that? Well, he was on the earth to do the will of his Father, and the Lord in heaven, God the Father, wanted him to go there because there was a woman who needed Christ. There's no people group. It was a divine necessity that he go through there. Christians often have a compass that is set on convenience, right? I'm not going to go talk to that neighbor. He has the bulldog. I'm not going to go there because I don't think they're reachable. I'm not going to, and we have this GPS, don't we, that doesn't include the most difficult path for people as the first choice, but he must needs go through Samaria because We understand, of course, that there was a needy woman who, of course, needed to come out and come find the Savior to be the one that is the answer to her need. So she is coming to the well. She goes there every day. And the next thing we see in our text, of course, is the discussion with this woman by the well. You see these verses really in the ensuing verses in uh, take quite a bit of textual ground here. We'll not read them all. We've already had a good start on them, but she comes to the well, and I I think there are great principles to be gleaned from the Lord, how how He meets her and begins to share living water with her. The first thing I notice when Jesus sits down there, the Bible says He's weary. He cometh to a city, verse 5, of Samaria, and, uh, and it's, it's Sychar, which is a town that's about a half a mile away from this well. And uh, the, the region, of course, is Samaria, but Sychar is the village or town. And she, every day, takes a hike of a half a mile to lower this vessel into the deep well that was 100 foot deep, is what we hear from historians. It was a great well at the bottom of which was a flowing, stri- a, a, a flowing spring. Well, the Lord is weary. He dispatches His, his uh, disciples to go buy food, provisions in town, and He's resting there. Jesus, being wearied, verse 6, with His journey, sat on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A couple ways to compute that. It could be around noon or 6 p.m. And uh, the Bible, depending on how, what, what calendar and what time signatures you use, Roman or, or Jewish, I tend to favor the later hour because the fact that they later would ask Jesus to spend the night there. At any rate, she's seated there, or she comes and he's seated there. A woman of Samaria comes, verse 7, and Jesus does what? 
Jesus speaks to her. It's a blessing to know that God has given us the ability to communicate one with another. This was a little bit of a surprise to her, but the conversation was initiated by Christ. I got on a plane recently to go to Salt Lake City, and I was praying, Lord, give me opportunity to, to share the gospel with folks on the plane. I pray that. Um, and it's amazing anymore, if you travel much by air, you know that when folks get on the plane anymore, it wasn't like it used to be where uh, there wasn't cell phones and headphones anymore. Everybody jumps on the plane, slaps on their headphones, and gets into a little world right in front of them. It's amazing. We can talk to people in China and all over the world, but we can't talk to the person seated. You almost have to do this. Hey, can I talk to you? Well, this was before that time, and so he initiated the conversation. We ought to be good at that. And then we see the conversation was not contrived. Verse 7, he speaks about common things, about water, about thirst. He's thirsty. Jesus, who was all God, all man, got weary and thirsty. And so he talks about the things that, that is common, a common setting. It's a well, a place where people gather to draw water. Where people with thirst come together. And it's a bit surprising to the woman, but I like the fact that even though it was culturally a bit of a faux pas, religious leaders, at least around Jerusalem, were um, cautioned not to speak to women in public like this. And so she's a bit surprised by this. But here he is, and, and he speaks to her. He initiates the conversation, and then he speaks about things that are just normal things. I, I often uh, am asked, well, what do I talk about when I knock on a door? What do I speak about when I want to tell people about Christ? I say this, uh, you know, if you're going to speak to someone about the Lord, just start on common ground. <laughs> speak about common interest. Just be yourself, if you can, the best version of yourself. Enjoy the conversation. My son is great at this, much better than I. He says, Dad, we j I just go to coffee shops because I, I love to drink coffee and I love to talk to people. And he does. And he doesn't start with slapping them on the forehead and saying, if you died at this moment, where would you be in glory? Would you go to heaven or hell? Now, we got to get there somehow, don't we? we got to get to the gospel. But he starts with things they enjoy, with cars or whatever it is. You know what Jesus just says, would you mind giving me a drink? Sometimes, I don't know what it is about us when we go soul winning or try to go out, it just becomes so contrived, almost, I call it a weirdness sets in on us. And we, we just aren't natural about things that are supernatural. The Lord just looks at her and says, dear woman, would it be okay if you give me a drink? I'm awful thirsty. And from there, there is this repartee, there's this discussion that goes on. She will say over 60 words in the context, and she's interested. And so he's not talking about something odd or different. He's simply saying, lady, I'm thirsty. Would you give me a cup of water? And she knows, and he knows this is a great place to start conversations. It's almost like the New Testament Starbucks, the well of water. And he's there, and he opens a discussion about water. 
And then we see the conversation becomes a dialogue. It's, it's not a sermon he preaches here. Often in our conversations with others, we want to say to them something where they will say to us what we want them to say so that we can say what we want to say. And I'm not opposed to methods. I've learned a method in evangelism. I think methods are wonderful. They unlock the mind and set a structure in our hearts about getting to the gospel, especially when there's not a lot of time. But even in that, we want to make sure that we listen as well as we talk. And Jesus is a listener. He's not preaching. He's not lecturing. He's speaking. He's developing a relationship with this lady. And you see as he's talking to her, and, and she is surprised that A, that a man is speaking to a woman, that a Jew, a Jew is even there at the well, Jacob's well. What in the world is she's beginning to uh, become interested in sharing what's on her heart? And it's fascinating because her response here, she says to him, while he's alone there with, with her, he says, she says, verse 9, how is it, after he asks for a drink, how is it that you, being a Jew, asketh drink of me, which am of a woman of Samaria? And she adds this, in case you don't know, <laughs> we have no dealings with you. And mainly, it, it's your fault. You're the one that cut us off way back in 722 and beyond. Why? Are you speaking to me? That word, dealings, is interesting because the fact that his disciples have just gone into the town a half a mile away to get food and provisions, meat, the Bible says here, means that there's dealings going on, commercial dealings. Uh, they've been to the marketplace. They're buying things. So what does she mean? It's a fascinating word in the original. It simply means this. We do not share drinking vessels with Jews. You've asked me to drink out of my water pot, and we don't do that. And you ought to know that. We have no dealings with you at all. <laughs> uh, I may be a little bit inclined to be on the side of the Pharisees on this. My wife would tell you. She's been gone a couple of weeks. But she, even when with the kids were small, I did not drink out of their cups. Any other men like that? That long string of spit that goes, I, and uh, I didn't know whether, half the time I didn't know whether they're sick or not sick. I, I just said, this is my cup. I'm drinking from this one. And this lady says, wow, this is amazing. You want to drink out of my water pot being a Samaritan and you a Jew? That's amazing. And it wasn't that the Samaritans had a thing about drinking water after the Jews. It was the other way around. The Jews believed that just to touch anything ascribed to that group of people was to make yourself unclean. Well, by now, we see that the conversation is arising, arousing excuse me, curiosity. And it's a wonderful thing in our discussions with the lost when there is an honest curiosity about, uh, about the discussion that we know will lead to further questions. The Lord, first of all, appears, uh, appeals to her sympathy 
Would you please give me a drink of water? And then we see her curiosity is aroused. She's now very curious about this man. What a great tool in evangelism is the tool of curiosity that leads from the secular to the sacred. She is now very much engaged. She's curious, almost suspicious, asking questions. She's engaged in the dialogue. And we must understand that that's so important in relationship building. Can I, can I understand? Do you understand this? <laughs> understand this, what thou readest, Philip. Do you, do you get, do you, are you following me? And she is curious. And he says, uh, he says, if you knew, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink. You would have asked of him, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Wow! She is very interested in this. One of the, can you think of how long it takes to walk a half a mile? Water pot on your shoulder, fill it up, drag it up a hundred feet, put it on your shoulder or head and take it all the way, every day? You mean, sir, there's something magical or mystical about a what? And you know what she's thinking. She's thinking, well, um, maybe he can help me out now. And she asked him a question, are, are, are you greater than Jacob who dug this well, refreshed it at least? And can you provide some sort of water that's better? Now, at the bottom of this well was a spring. And what they would like to do uh, was they would drop their water vessel or their, their pots of whatever, not, probably not clay because it's so heavy, but other materials to the well. We had one of these in Brazil, one of these wells that we would gather water from. And it was fun to drop the bucket and listen for how long it took for it to hit the top of the water. At the top of the water was standing or still water. But the Jews, or even the Samaritans knew that at the bottom of the well, if they could wait patiently till the bucket went all the way down to the bottom, there was a flowing spring of bubbling water, which some of them called the living, bubbling, effervescent water. And she's still thinking in terms of that water, she says. Uh, the Lord is saying, I would have given you, if you just asked, knew who I was, I would give you living water. And she's still thinking in the natural, physical sense. Verse 11, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Whence are you going to get this living water? You don't even have tools to... <laughs> Here you are, sitting on the well. You don't even have a bucket. You don't have a rope. Where are you going to get this special, free-flowing water that comes the best of the water from the bottom of the well? Are you greater than Jacob? Verse 12, he drank of this well, children, cattle. And Jesus answers and says to her, whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. He's trying to explain what living water is. Verse 10, though, back to that. Let's put it in more of our, our common vernacular. If you knew the gift of the gospel, not of works, but of grace, that covers sin, cleanses, cleanses by the blood of the Lamb, and imputes a righteousness not earned by me. If you knew about that water, you would have asked me for it. You would have had instantly, internally living water. She's curious. 
Listen, by the way, the Lord is going from what is natural and give me a drink, please, to what is the need of every heart to be a worshiping disciple of Christ who knows what living water is. And he's moving in that direction. And she's curious. I used to go out many years ago and knock on doors with a man who was a great conversationalist. But he was always afraid to talk about living water. He, uh, being in Indiana, was a great, we call them the Indiana Hoosiers, the basketball team. And the days were the Bobby Knight days. And we would knock on doors, and immediately my friend, whose name I will withhold, would talk about Bobby Knight and the Hoosiers. And we, we got in so many doors talking about, Bobby Knight doesn't know this, talking about him. And about how he can throw chairs across, you know, some of you are looking at me the other day, who is that guy? A coach of the Indiana basketball, back in the day, famous coach. And we would talk and talk, and finally, after we left one house, I turned to my friend and I said, listen, friend, here we are talking about a coach who threw chairs across the floor, got mad at his kids. Yeah, he had some great coach, but... We've missed an opportunity to talk about somebody who can provide living water to these people. We don't ever share the gospel unless we get to the gospel. The Lord is getting there, isn't He? He's getting to living water, and she has a growing interest, a curiosity in that. And she is tired of carrying water, water on her shoulder or head every day, and so she wants spring water. She wants this magic water that will fill her up and never make her to come back. She's curious. Well, here we see a disclosure or two that really changed everything. Jesus explains the nature of it. It's living. It's spiritual. It's internal. Verse 13, Jesus answers and says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but what I give him is inexhaustible. It's internal. It's spiritual. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. There is an internal bubbling, growing truth and the presence of Christ himself in you. It will be a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And she is still a bit confused. She says, give me this water. I want it. I wa- I'm not sure what it is. But I want it. He is saying it's not physical water. It's spiritual. It's self-perpetuating, always growing, bubbling up, never running dry, not from below, but from above. It's everlasting. It doesn't come from this well, lady. It comes from me. Wow. Still unsure in verse 15, she says, Give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. I'm interested in this unusual water. I'd like the water you speak of. I'd like not to come to this well. That would be nice. Give me this mysterious, mystical water. Is she ready to be saved? No. This is curious because after she says, give me this water, most of us as soul winners would say, well, please bow your head, ma'am, and let's pray the prayer. 
she's not ready to be saved yet. Why? She's not convinced of what the water is, and she is not yet confronted with her sinfulness. And so, although she's curious and desirous, open, she's not convicted or convinced of the character of Christ or the nature or immorality of her own life. It starts with sympathy and curiosity, and now the Lord moves to the conscience, and He, dis- he, he explains or exposes the nature of her. Often when you read this text, you get to this next verse, and you think, Lord, you've lost an opportunity. Lead this gal to Christ. You're right there. She's asked for water, living water. This is your moment. And he changes the subject because he's going to expose the nature of her heart. What does he say to her? Uh, He says, verse 16, Would you please go call your husband and come hither? That seems like a strange diversion in the conversation. And you know, whereas she has said 66 words in these verses, now she simply looks at him and with somewhat of a whispered mutter in the Greek says three words. Husbands, I, husband, I have not. That's three words in the Greek, a little more in English. Husband, I have not. And the Lord who is the master of bringing to us the true condition of our heart, says, woman, you have finally spoken the truth. You don't have a husband. The one you're, you've had five, and the one you're living with is not your husband. And the Lord, in that sweeping, a simple economy of words, sweeps packs the history of her life and says, exposes her heart. You're a sinful, immoral woman, and you are really strangled, held captive by your own sinful impulses. When is somebody ready to receive Christ? Conversion never takes place until there's a sense of guilt, a consciousness of sin, a desire for repentance. Ever hear this when you're witnessing to someone? I'd like to change my life. You're not ready. I'd like to turn over a new leaf. You're not ready. I'd like to give Jesus a try. I'd like a ticket to heaven, a ticket out of hell. You're not ready. I'd like to join church, get baptized. You're not ready until you are cut to the quick, to the core, by the sword of the Spirit, and you see yourself as incapable, as a sinner, apart from any plan or merit of your own to reach heaven. You must see, I need Christ. And in our soul winning, we must ask the question, how are you doing with law-keeping? seems strange to us that the rich young ruler, Nicodemus, others, even in John 2, 24, believe in that, and, and although some believed in him, the Lord didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in them. And he looked into her heart and says, you need to understand how sinful you are. Before I get saved, before you get saved, there has to be not only a desire for heaven, there must be a repentance of sin and a, a full a understanding of how far we are from God and where our sin has taken us and will take us without Christ. And so when he says to her, woman, and I'm going to 
speed up because of time, but he says, woman, your heart is a mess. I know it is. And she says, you must be a prophet, which answers the question in verse, um, uh, verse 12, are you greater than Jacob? Jacob could not see into the heart. This man by the well can. You must be greater than Jacob. And she says, you must be a prophet because you can see my life and my heart. He's going to declare in a a few more minutes to her, Jesus said, verse 26, I am the Messiah, basically. And verse 25, there's a disclosure too, right? And so Jesus expresses the nature. She changes the subject to church. Whether this was a diversion or a true desire of her heart to know, she says, I don't know where to worship. I want to. I don't... We worship here on Mount Gerizim. You worship in Jerusalem, and you say you're to worship there. We can't even go there. You've excluded us. We worship here. It's open freewheeling. It's a little bit inclusive. Yours is exclusive. Yours is formal. Ours is not. And the Lord doesn't say, okay, well, although He says the Jews have the Scriptures that lead to salvation. He does say that. He says, you worship what you don't even know, but there's a time coming where Worship will not be exclusively tied to a place, but it should be exclusively tied to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he opens up the desire of his own heart that should inform our evangelism. The hour is coming, he says to her. Instead of taking sides, their preaching excluded Uh, the teaching of the prophets in the Old Testament, and the psaltery was not even included, the Psalms of David. And he's saying there's a time coming, though, that you need to know it's about Jesus Christ. Your form of worship is lacking. Ours in Jerusalem largely is formalistic and dead. (laughs) We have the truth, but we don't know the Savior. He says, it is about me. He points to himself. I am he. Standing in front of you is the Lord Jesus Christ. He at your well is standing. He at your door is knocking. Quit seeking to find and fulfill your heart's drive and craving for significance and for love in anything else. Come to Christ. Of course, we don't have time to finish the story, but she leaves her water pot and runs to town and she says, come meet a man that's told me everything I've ever done. It must be him. She is overwhelmed by her need of a Savior, of forgiveness from sin. And she, collects, she becomes a soul winner And the same day she gets saved, you've got to see him. You've got to come visit at the well. He's still there. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. While on others you're calling, I have to think about the plan of God in heaven that included this trip through Samaria. This stop at a lonely, deserted well, at least at the time, just one lady that we know of came. And yet a love of God that spends private, personal time with this woman, expressing to her, holding out to her living water. Aren't you glad God came by your door, your heart? 
Perhaps if you're here not saved this morning, God is knocking on your heart's door. and You've been believing that the water you've been drinking is good enough. And God is saying, no, that water is external. That water is physical. That water will never do it. That God, that idol will never satisfy the longings of your heart. Only Jesus can do that. I am He. This declaration of His divinity is one of the clearest in all the New Testament. And it was given to a Samaritan woman. What a blessing. God did not. He spent a couple days there, but we know of no miracles that He did in Samaria. And yet He ministered to this lady because He loves the lost. He must needs go through. Who are you worshiping? How are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? If it's anything less than the blessed Savior, we are all idolaters. Let's lift our eyes to the one who loves our soul, saved us, bled for our atonement, and offers us living water that springs up in us. And he says, I am looking, and I'll close with this, I am looking for those. Not that God doesn't know where we are. But his search is for those in this church and beyond Christendom. He's looking for believers that base their worship in truth, scriptures, but then have this small s spirit of joy in the truth. May God help us at Bible Baptist Church to enjoy our Savior. I don't want what you have if what you have doesn't put a spring in your step, a smile on your face, and joy in your heart. But if God saved you from an eternal hell and has adorned you with all these wonderful benefits of heaven, if that doesn't motivate you to smile, to sing, and to love others, I don't want what you have. Could it be, moms and dad, that our kids have left our churches because they're dead, and I'm talking about the buildings, not, I'm talking about us. The Lord is looking for those worshipers who love Him in spirit and in truth. Let's not divorce those two. And such a testimony will certainly impact the lost world as nothing else will. May God help us to be true worshipers. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.